You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now, next Sunday evening, uh, Sinclair will be back with us, and he's going to begin a new series on Genesis, Genesis 1 to 3. Uh, So we very much look forward to that. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, I did a question. Um, Normally, if you're you're a visitor here, normally what we do is we teach through a book of the Bible. But a couple of times, I've been doing what we might call apologetic questions, questions that people ask, both Christians and non-Christians. And this evening, uh, I want to do one on, is the Bible trustworthy? Now, that may seem kind of strange, because some of you who are Christians will go, yeah, duh, of course the Bible's trustworthy, it's the Word of God. And it's not a problem uh, for me, and you have no difficulty with that. But I want you to think about a story that I could repeat in different forms many times, of a young person who's grown up in a Christian home, gone to Sunday school, gone to youth fellowship, gone to church services, believer, they come to university, and for the first time, they hear, actually, the Bible's not true. So they, for example, they may hear uh, QI last night, I think, had um, Stephen Fry and all, all the others just saying, well, there's the census in uh, Luke's gospel or Matthew's gospel, just the census, and it's, and it's just false. It didn't happen. We know it didn't happen. And they're told with all authority that some of the things that the Bible said did happen, didn't happen. And on television, uh, the BBC will always put forward somebody who's an expert who says, well, actually, King David didn't exist or Moses didn't exist. And if you're a young Christian, you don't really know, you've never been taught any of this, then you start saying, well, if the Bible's not right there, then how can I know it's right elsewhere? And I've seen many people who've had a crisis of faith over that. But I also want you to think about the person who's in your office or who's in your class or who works with you wherever you work, or is in your home, or who's at your dinner party, or in a restaurant with you, and they know that you're a Christian, they don't care particularly that you're a Christian, but they're not going to touch Christianity with a barge pole, because for them, believing the Bible is like believing a fairy story. And you'd be just as well taking Grimm's fairy tales as believing that. And therefore, I'm not saying that we have to have all the answers, and please, I've got like 12 pages of notes, so I'm gonna, I normally have about half that number, so I'm not, I'm not going to try and do everything. If you've got any questions at the end, speak to Will. He's the, he's the expert. Um, but I just want to give you an overview, and I hope that you'll be encouraged. If you're a believer, I hope that you'll be encouraged at, at how God's Word really is truth, that you don't have to hide away by saying, well, I'm just going to believe it, I'm just going to believe it. But I hope if you're not a believer, and this is one of the questions that you have, that it will cause you to stop and to think. This is what Hebrews 1 says. I'm going to be basically referring to Scripture all the time. And for some people, that's a difficulty because they're saying you're using the Bible to prove the Bible. That's not quite true. I'm using the Bible to tell you what the Bible says its purpose is. And that's slightly different. Hebrews 1 In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed 
heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, it's very straightforward. How would we know about God? Well, we could feel, we could have dreams, we could have visions. Someone could tell us. How would we know they were telling the truth? How would we know our dreams were reliable? We only really know about God if he speaks to us. And God did speak. He spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. That's what Hebrews 1 is saying. But in the New Testament, he's spoken to us by Jesus. Well, how do we know who Jesus is and what Jesus has said? Well, Jesus chose 12 apostles. And those 12 apostles were told that they would remember what he had said to them. And after all the trauma of the cross and the resurrection and so on, they did. And they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down what we call the New Testament. So, we believe that God communicates to us through his word. When people say the Bible is written as fairy tale or myth, that is not true. Myth begins like there lived a hobbit in a hole. That's myth. There was a dragon. That's myth. Not Myth does not begin in the beginning God. And as we see, we'll look at a moment at one or two other passages in the Bible which indicate it was not myth. There are people who say it's kind of um, an unreliable source, that it was written by illiterate desert shepherds, and we are much cleverer now and we know much more. There's always the problem of how illiterate people actually wrote something. Um, That's one thing. The second thing, if you really believe that, just go and read John 1.1. Not John 1.1, the whole first chapter of John's Gospel. The whole first chapter of John's Gospel is just a stunning piece of literature. And it could not have been written by somebody who, I mean, for me, inspiration is shown by John 1. Others say it's kind of like the Da Vinci Code. It's an invention by the church hundreds of years after the event, and that there were lots and lots of gospels, and then these power-hungry men in particular, because they wanted to oppress women, came along, and they wiped out most of the gospels, and just took four that pleased them, and just drew it up. Now, as I say, when some people hear those kinds of arguments for the first time, they go, oh, what if that's true? But I'm afraid uh, for those who want that to be true, the evidence is overwhelmingly against it. The idea of it being a, a, a myth, Luke chapter 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That is telling us how the Gospel of Luke, and in fact, really the other Gospels, but particularly the Gospel of Luke, was drawn up. There were eyewitnesses. There were stories that were passed on. And Luke investigated these. He investigated the different sources and he wrote out the Gospel of Luke and he wrote out the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we believe, so that this person called Theophilus, who is almost certainly a Roman official, would know for certain the things he had been taught. The Bible is written as history. 
So please do not treat the Bible as a magic book and do not treat the Bible as myth. And do not treat the Bible as some kind of tale or, or saga. There are things within the Bible that, that you can prove and in, in theory anyway at least disprove. Now why were we given the Bible? Oops. Sorry, this is quite a lengthy quote. And I just thought it was the best summary I could get. Uh, out of the Westminster Confession, it says this. Now, just bear with this, please, because it's, it's, I know it's a Sunday evening, but this is a wee bit of theology, and this is actually really helpful to us. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of, of God as to leave men inexcusable. So, in other words, what you see in creation means that everyone knows that there's a God. It's as simple as that. Yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. It's not enough. It's not enough to take a walk in the hills. It's not enough to look at a lovely sunset across the River Tay and go, wow. Doesn't tell you enough about God. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times, at different times, and in different manners to reveal himself and declare his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing. That is a really interesting thing, that God gave us his word, not just only to reveal himself to us, but to protect us from all the assaults of the evil one and of the world and of our own corruption. Which is why, if you ask, why is the church in Scotland overall today rotten? It's because we've said to God, we don't need your word. But that's the very thing that's been given to us. Which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. These former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Now, that's a controversial thing for some Christians. They will say, well, they're still prophets and they're still apostles. Well, to some extent, I think they are right. There, there are people who pronounce God's word as the prophets did, and there are people who are sent out with God's word as the apostles were. But there are not apostles in the sense of the 12 apostles who had to be with Jesus during his ministry. And Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah are not in the New Testament church. There was a period... For example, at the end of the Old Testament from Malachi of 400 years where there were no prophets. What happens in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all God's people and we're all prophets in one sense, but we are all given the prophetic word of God. We all have the scripture and that's why the scripture is so important and so necessary. Personally, I don't doubt that God can use different means to speak to people, that God can speak to people through dreams and so on. But God has given us his word as an absolute authority. It's what Peter calls a more sure and a more certain word. And so the Bible is the, the bedrock of the Christian church. We worship Jesus Christ. We worship Christ alone. We don't worship the Bible, but how do we know about Christ? It is through the Bible. And how does Christ speak to us? It is through his word. Somebody this morning said to me after the service, I just, I was so conscious of God speaking. 
and to me. And of course he was, because his word was being proclaimed. So, in that sense, that's the purpose of the Bible, and that's why it's so important. Now, how can we know if any of it actually happened? Now, I want to just take a wee sidetrack a minute and to talk about how people understand history in our culture. It used to be that many years ago, people would look and say, well, there are certain things that happened that were historical fact. But now there are an awful lot of people who argue that history is just a matter of subjective opinion. It's just what I feel. That, in fact, to even look for historical truth is just a waste of time. It's what's called historical relativism. So, for example, you can go to Poland, you can go to Krakow, and you can visit Auschwitz. And it's there. You see it. And yet there's a historian called David Irving who said, oh yes, Auschwitz is there, but the Holocaust didn't really happen. And he can be really, really clever and explain things, and it's all a big conspiracy. And so lots of people just give up and say, well, how can we know anything? And they do that with the Bible. So it's very difficult sometimes in our culture. And sometimes Christians give up as well and say, well, what does it matter? Well, I'll tell you why it matters. Let God be true and every man a liar. If God said something happened in history and it didn't happen, then God is lying and God cannot lie. And if the word of God says that something happened and it didn't happen, then it's not the word of God. And then we're stuffed in terms of knowing what God says. Now, I I say this, um, I somewhat laughingly call myself an historian because I did a history degree and I love history and I read lots of history and, and I've been looking at this for decades and decades and decades. And just as a personal testimony, which you do not have to accept, but I'll say this to, to you. I've read the Bible as history all my life and I've never found any reason to go away and say, Lord, that can't be right. There's lots of questions, no question about that. But from a historical point of view, never found any. Well, how do, we, how do we know? There are written accounts, and there are written accounts by non-Christian sources as well as biblical sources. There's eyewitness testimony. It's a very, very, very powerful thing. I mentioned this morning the 105-year-old lady who was, I think it was Hartlepool, uh, that was bombed in the First World War or fired on by German uh, battleships. And just listening to her description, it was very evocative. You're not going to doubt that that happened. Well, there's something that's very, very important. In fact, um, I'm going to mention, because of limits in time, and you'll see why. I'm going to mention, if you really, really got questions and doubts about these kind of things. First of all, this book's like a really heavy book. Like you can really hit someone over it. But... It's Jesus and the Eyewitness, the Gospels as Eyewitness Testament by Richard Bauckham, who used to be in St. Andrews. Now, I love it. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant book because he shows absolutely conclusively in it that the Gospels are eyewitness accounts of what happened, taken from many different sources, not just the four apostles. That's what Luke is saying, that he carefully investigated. And that eyewitness accounts in the first century were far more verifiable and important than today people think, oh, I saw it on the telly. 
Well, you think you see something on the television and that makes it real. No, it doesn't make it real. It can be falsified. But eyewitness accounts are really, really important. By the way, a lot of, um, you can get much simpler, why trust the Bible, Amy or Ewing, which I would strongly recommend. And then if you're really interested in the history, The Christ Files by John Dixon, how historians know what they know about Jesus. And that's uh, from a historical point of view. That's a really tremendous book. But we would know um, also from archaeology and from the evidence of the empty tomb. And I'll say something about the archaeology in a moment. And then what's called inferential evidence. So the disciples, for example, were transformed. After Jesus was crucified, they were totally depressed. They'd given up on everything. Yet within a couple of months, they were turning the Roman Empire upside down because they believed Jesus was alive. It's a very, very powerful testimony and inference. So, if we've got that, what about the actual manuscripts from which we get the Bible? Are they reliable? What about the documents and everything else that comes from that? Now, just bear with me. For those of you who kind of your eyes immediately glaze over with total boredom, um, this is actually quite important, and it it, it should encourage you. F.F. Bruce says this, There's no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. You could look at something like the Iliad or the Odyssey, classic Greek works. I think the earliest manuscript we, had of the, we have of the Odyssey is about a thousand years after it was written, but nobody doubts it's the real thing. We have copies of New Testament documents that are within decades of them being written. And we don't just have one copy we have thousands and thousands of copies. Now, I put it there, you'll see two things. There are over 24,000 extant documents. Some people think there are over 50,000 documents from all over, from uh, Egypt and from Syria and from Greece and from Italy and from Spain and from North Africa. And these are gathered, and remember, this is in a pre-internet age, When you put all these and you gather all these together, there are 20,000 lines in the New Testament and there are only 40 lines that are questioned even with these thousands of documents and those 40 lines of questioning by people comparing the text, they are usually about spelling differences and tiny things. There are very few, if if any, it's questionable, any doctrinal things. I mean, it really is totally remarkable. Um, The Iliad, for example, has only 15,600 lines, and 764 of them are questioned, and that's with a much smaller weight. How do we know when these guys, they didn't have computers and so on, when they copied things out, how do we know they didn't get it right? Because they weren't like us when we copy things out. Because if you belonged to a school called the Talmudists or the Masorets, when you wrote something down, it, and, you, and it was there as scripture, you had to be absolutely certain you were copying it, not just word for word, but letter for letter. Bruce says this, with the greatest imaginable reverence, they devised a complicated system of safeguards against scribal slips. They counted, for example, the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurs in each book. 
They pointed out the middle letter of the Pentateuch, the law, and the middle letter of the whole Hebrew Bible and made even more detailed calculations than these. The, the, the tradition, the way that the manuscripts of the New Testament and the Old Testament were copied is a very, very strong indicator that they were likely to, pre- to be preserved exactly if you go to Dublin and you uh, go to the university there and visit the Book of Celts, and it's a copy of the Gospel of John, you'll see how beautifully every single letter is written. You don't make mistakes. This is not an essay you're writing in school. This is not quickly typing something and hoping that spell checker is going to come up with it. This is a group of people examining every single letter. And that's important. What about the Old Testament? Well, it's very simple. First of all, it's the Bible that Jesus used. And secondly, we didn't really have a lot of Old Testament manuscripts from way, way back before Jesus. And some, but not nearly as many as the New Testament, until an amazing discovery uh, occurred. And that was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In February, March of 1947, a Bedouin shepherd boy named Muhammad was searching for a lost goat. He tossed a stone into a hole in a cliff on the west side of the Dead Sea, about eight miles south of Jericho. And he got a bit of a shock when he heard crashing glass or pottery. Um, So he went in to see what he'd hit. And he discovered an amazing sight. On the floor of the cave were several large jars containing leather scrolls wrapped in linen cloth. Because the jars were carefully sealed, the scrolls had been preserved in excellent condition for nearly 1,900 years, and we know that they were placed there in the year A.D. 68. Now remember, Jesus was killed in around the year A.D. 33. And what's astonishing about these Dead Sea Scrolls, you get all these people going, oh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that just proves that the Bible is not true. They know nothing about the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are 40,000 fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Before the discovery of the scrolls, the oldest manuscript was about 1,300 years after the writing of the complete Old Testament. So what people did was they went back and they checked. They checked the Dead Sea Scrolls and they checked the oldest manuscript they had. And so, for example, they had a complete copy of Isaiah in Hebrew. And the nearest thing they had to that was 1,000 years from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when they contrasted it with the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found that it was word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in 95% of the text, and the 5% of variation was just spelling. Now, I know that you, oh, that's, what are you saying? I'm saying it is extraordinary, it is incredible how the, the manuscripts of the Old and the New Testament have been transmitted and how they have been passed down. And so when you hear people who don't know what they're talking about and who are just repeating what they hear on programs like QI, you need to be absolutely assured that that it is not the case. It 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 is extraordinary. Now, given that the text that we've got of the Bible is the text that Jesus had, the text of the Old Testament, given that the text that we have of the Gospels and the text we have of Paul's letters is the text that the early church had, And I would be, personally, I would stake my life on it, actually. I think historically the evidence is that strong. Some people might say, 
how do we know what is right? Uh, that the history is right. Surely people could have written a text. I mean, if we had 20,000 manuscripts about men from Mars coming and landing on Earth, would that mean that it was true? No, it wouldn't. So how do we know what is right? Well, forgive me for quoting from my own book, which is really dreadful. Um, the book's not dreadful. The book's great. But uh, you could argue that they are bad or inaccurate history. You can't dismiss these documents as unhistorical, mythological documents. But this is how you could ex- show that they were wrong. You could, for example, example, identify events, places, or people that they describe, um, or people that they describe, which we now know from history, did not exist. You could date the Gospels, which say they're eyewitness, or based on eyewitness accounts, as being centuries after the events the authors supposedly witnessed. And you could claim that there were many other Gospels and that the church in or around the 4th century just did a pick and mix of the ones that suited them. Now, I just want to deal with those three things. First of all, lie number one that gets told is there's no reference to events in the Bible out with the Bible. That is not true. There are numerous. Um, Josephus, for example, was born in the year 37. He became a Pharisee at the age of 19. He wrote... Uh, things like the history of the Jewish war and, and so on. In it, he confirms Herod, Pilate, Felix, Festus, the high priestly families of Annas, Caiaphas, Ananias, all there in the New Testament, all confirmed. Gamaliel in Acts 5.37, speaking of Judas the Galilean who led an uprising. The famine in the days of Claudius, Acts 11.28. James, the brother of the so-called Christ. And then this rather extraordinary quote that comes from uh, Josephus. He wrote about the, the, the cru- crucifixion. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man. Now remember this, this is a Jewish historian who doesn't believe in Jesus. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of surprising works a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah or the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named for him, are not extinct to this day. Now, there's arguments about two or three lines in that, particularly about being called the Messiah and witness of him being alive. But this is an extraordinary testimony from out with the Christian church. There's a, I'll just, I gave these, put these names up here so that you can, a man called Thallus, who wrote uh, the history of uh, Greece and wrote it about the year 52. But in the third of his histories, he did something amazing. He spoke about the darkness that came at the time of Christ's crucifixion over the land. And he tried to explain it as an eclipse of the sun. But here's the amazing thing. He describes it as happening as the Bible said. Tacitus wrote a history of Rome just at the end of the first century. And when recording the time of Nero, he said this. He talks about how Nero 
substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loath for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, from whom they got their name, had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor. And the pernicious superstition was checked for a short time, only to break out afresh, not only in Judea, the home of the plague, but in Rome itself, where all the horrible and shameful things in the world collect and find a home. He's a Roman who hates Christians, and he's telling us that Jesus lived and was crucified. Suetonius writes this, Punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men addicted to a novel and mischievous superstition. They all, he talked about how they brought disturbances at the instigation of Christus. Pliny said that Christians were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang an anthem to Christ as God. Do you know all these liberal Christians who go, well, the early church didn't think of Jesus as God. And here's one of the earliest writings we have about the church. They sang an anthem to Christ as God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to commit any wicked deed but to abstain from all fraud, theft, and adultery, never to break their word or deny a trust when called upon to honor it, after which it was their custom to separate and then meet again to partake of food, but food of an ordinary kind. I mentioned um, the way that people do things. Some people, you'll hear things like, well, the Bible talks about Jesus of Nazareth, but Josephus doesn't mention Nazareth. There's no evidence of Nazareth. Nazareth didn't exist. And you would have heard that, those of you who are a wee bit older, you would have heard that used many times by people until the 1950s when someone dug up the village of Nazareth. It's there. Or the census. They say, oh, there wasn't a census then, it's the wrong date. But we have evidence of two censuses occurring. And I've never come across anything because the Bible is telling us what the eyewitnesses saw, inspired by the Spirit. First John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, you see the importance of that from Scripture. It wasn't just saying, we had a dream, we had a vision. The whole point about the apostles were, they seen, they touched, they heard Jesus Christ. They witnessed, they were the eyewitnesses. Maybe one other thing I just want to say about um, the New Testament. I find, and, and... the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls primarily Old Testament. However, a piece of Mark's gospel was found in the cave, dated between 50 BC and 50 AD. So they, they, it's, it cannot be more than 15 years after the death of Jesus. Do you know that the whole church in Scotland was torn apart by what someone's called 70 tons of indigestible German scholarship, which went to prove that the Gospel of Mark had not been written until 200 years after Jesus. And there were people who based their whole ministry on this kind of stuff. And then we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, which show that Mark's Gospel was there at a very, very early time. 
you can have great confidence in the Word of God as historical. Maybe just um, something about what's called the canon, because this is just because of uh, that dreadful book and dreadful film, The Da Vinci Code. Because there are people who wander around and they go, oh yeah, I know what happened. And, and, and people say this, that the church just made it all up about three, four hundred years afterwards. Now the word canon, it's not a gun, it's from the Greek canon, and I've probably, I've definitely pronounced that a lot, and I'll speak to Thanos and Maria afterwards. Um, uh, you've got to have emphasis on the end, so canon, meaning reed. The reed was used as a measuring rod, and it was saying this is a standard. Now, what the canon is, is not the church going along and saying, right, we're going to pick that book, and we'll take that one, we'll take that one, we'll leave out that one. It's the church. It means an officially accepted list of books. The church did not choose the canon. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The church recognized the inspiration of certain books. So these books were around the first century. And the church accepted them in the second century. And then a man called Marcion came along in the second century. And he tried to get rid of books that he didn't like. And there was all kinds of heresies came into the church. And so the council of the church met in 393 in a place called Hippo, Hippo and again in 397 in Carthage. And they said, which are the books that the apostles wrote? You see, you didn't need to ask that when the apostles were there. But when they weren't there, and when you didn't have their descendants after them for a couple of generations, which were the books that the apostles wrote? So they took all the ones that the churches accepted. There was question marks about some. Revelation, Hebrews, and so on. Who's the author and um, what was the purpose of them? But our current New Testament, it was accepted with very, very few rejections or doubts about any of the books. That's how we get the canon. So, you know, all the kind of myths that you hear about Christianity in the Bible, I think it's historically reliable, but I don't want to leave it there. Sorry to go back to the confession again. But I think this describes beautifully how we accept the scriptures as the word of God. We can be moved and induced, induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the holy scripture. And the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of all the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvations, the other Many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Bottom line is, you're not going to believe the Bible is the word of God unless the Holy Spirit convicts and convinces you of that. Now he can use all these different ways to do that. But I want those of you who are not Christians to realize why would you ever accept it? I don't think you reject it primarily because of the history and because of your knowledge of ancient Greek manuscripts. I think you reject it because you don't want it to be true. For those of us who are Christians and who sometimes struggle with some of the more intellectual aspects, listen, (coughs) intellectually, this all stands up very, 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 very well. But you could be intellectually convinced of something 
and yet it doesn't impact on your heart. The Holy Spirit bears witness. He takes the word. It's not dead. It's alive. Tim Keller tells the story of the novelist Anne Rice, who lost her childhood faith. When she read the work of skeptical scholars, it had the opposite effect than you would think. She said this, the whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified by nobody and had nothing to do with the founding of Christianity and would be horrified if he knew it, that whole picture which had floated in the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Sadly, there are people in Scotland today who are in the Christian church who are teaching God's word, supposed to be, and they say, nah, the Bible's not true. These bits were made up. And yes, we're still, we want to worship Jesus, but they just make up their own Jesus. The Bible's not true, but what they say is true, according to them. We can stand absolutely foursquare on the word of God. As, as I say, when I go, as I go on in life, more and more I am uncertain about many, many different things. But I'm not uncertain about the word of God. And I know what it is when Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. John says this, Jesus did many other, John 20 verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's an extraordinary quote by the reformer uh, Erasmus. The Bible will give Christ to you in an intimacy so close that he would be less visible to you if he stood before your very eyes. See, that's what we believe. And I think that's what happens. If Jesus was here, literally and physically, you would not be given Christ as fully as when he speaks through his word and, you're, and he is given through his word. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I'm sorry, for some of you, this is all a little bit dry and a little bit academic, and for others of you, this is not academic enough. This is only just skating over the surface, and uh, could we not have a two-hour lecture on Qumran Cave number seven, scroll 15, line 12? No, uh, you can't. Well, you can. Ask Will. Uh, but don't ask me. And I'm not all, you know, I, I realize that it's not everyone's cup of tea. But I just want to say to you, we, we all need to know this. The Word of God is constantly under attack. It's constantly under attack. And too many Christians just shut their eyes and go, I'm just going to believe it's true. I'm going to believe it's true anyway. And too many other Christians will look and say, oh, oh dear, oh dear, I can't cope with that. I can't handle that. That's too much. And I just want to say, look, believe what God's word says about itself. Understand that's not a contradictory argument. It claims to be testimony of eyewitnesses. It claims to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. It recalls certain events. And every time someone has come and said, well, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, they've never, ever been able 
to prove it. And for me, that's just a wonderful affirmation of my faith. I don't believe the Bible because Nazareth exists. But I tell you this, when they discovered that village, I think it's just absolutely wonderful. All these scholars who got their PhDs with egg on their face. Oh, Nazareth doesn't exist. Yeah, it does. I cannot, in fact, I would issue a very, very simple challenge. Feel free. Come and have a coffee with me and go to any historical event in the Bible and say, you know, that didn't happen. It just didn't happen. I can prove it didn't happen. Well, I'm open to considering and to looking at this, but the more I go on, the more we discover that what God's Word says is true. Now, of course, those of you who are Christians and have been around for a long while and have experienced the power of God's Word in your own life are going to go, well, of course it's true. But please do uh, have sympathy for those who are kept from such a positive affirmation of God's Word. And don't turn away from some of the more difficult questions that people will ask. I found something like Amy Orr Ewing's book is really very, very excellent at a very basic level, but it's, it's, it is wonderful dealing with the basic questions. But something like F.F. F. Bruce, the New Testament documents, is still uh, a very uh, excellent and superb work. There's a phrase, let God be true and every man a liar. How can we know? We can know because of God's word. It is sure and it is certain and it points us to and tells us about Jesus that we may believe. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's certain. Thank you that it's sure. Thank you that you inspired it. Thank you that you called Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and David and many other authors in the Old Testament, and the apostles, Peter, Paul, as one an apostle out of season. But you called them to reveal your word through them as human beings to us. And you used these fallible human beings to give us your infallible word. And we thank you that it's not a dead word, it's not just a historic document but it's your living word that as you spoke through David to the people of Israel, so you speak to us. As you spoke through Paul to the people of Ephesians, of Ephesus rather, you, so you speak to us. As Mark and Matthew and John and Luke investigated and wrote down the accounts and what they had seen and witnessed and what others had seen and witnessed, that this was a testimony to the church of the first century and the church of the 21st century. We pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word. And Lord, we ask that you would stop the mouths of those within your church who undermine and who seek to weaken and to destroy the faith of your people in your word. Lord, bless what we have looked at this evening and enable us not just to talk about the word, but to proclaim it even this week. In your name, in the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask it. Amen. We're going to-
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.